Welcome to Follow Him, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping individuals and families with their Come Follow Me study. I'm Hank Smith. And I'm John, by the way. We love to learn. We love to laugh. We want to learn and laugh with you. As together, we follow Him. Hello to our favorite listeners. This is Hank Smith. I am here with my splendid co-host, John, by the way. Hi, John. Hi, Hank. You can come to our website, followhim.co, followhim.co, and you can get uh, notes. Um, uh, you can get the transcription of the of the interview. You can get sources, all that you need there. Of course, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast. That always uh, helps us and tell your friends about it. Um, John, um, I'm, I'm excited every week uh, for Follow Him, but this particular week, I have a little bit of extra giddiness for. Who is joining us this week? Yeah, me too. We, we've got with us Brother S. Michael Wilcox, and he, uh, well, I'll read his bio and then I'm going to add, I'm going to add an addendum, but um, Brother S. Michael Wilcox received his PhD from the University of Colorado and taught for many years at the LDS Institute of Religion adjacent to the University of Utah. He has spoken to packed crowds at BYU Education Week, has hosted tours to the Holy Land and to church history sites. He served in a variety of callings, including as bishop and a counselor in a stake presidency. He has written many articles and books, including House of Glory, Sunset, Ten Great Souls I Want to Meet in Heaven, and Finding Hope. He and his late wife, Laurie, are the parents of five children. And he's written so many others. I love one called Don't Leap with the Sheep. I love the way Brother Wilcox just doesn't teach the scriptures, but teaches what the scriptures teach. And he has helped me so much. I I loved going to Time Out for Women, not so I could talk, so that I could listen (laughs) to Brother Wilcox's talks. And thank you for your influence on me personally and on so many. And welcome to Follow Him today. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I can't think of anyone who has had as much of an impact on my own teaching. I guess teenagers would say we're fangirling, John. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Remember what I told you. It took the father <laughs> seven words to introduce the son. So, <laughs> I always us- feel bad when it takes more than seven to introduce me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took us a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I prefer uh, here's that. Johnny for me. That's There we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's jump into our... Uh, our week's lesson, uh, Brother Wilcox. We're studying sections 64 through 66 of the Doctrine and Covenants. They're all received in September and October of 1831. Joseph Smith and um, many other missionaries have returned from a long journey to Missouri. Uh, let's back up as far as you want to, kind of give the, the background uh, to what's been happening to Joseph Smith and his contemporaries that leads up to this uh, September 11th uh, section, section 64? Well, they've been, I mean, there's not a, a tremendous amount of historical background that I think you need. I, I want to, we'll do a little bit, but then I want to go way back as another historical thing for, for verse one in particular. Uh, the Zion, idea of Zion is the dominant feature all through this period of church history. Uh, they want to build Zion. I'm sure in your previous ones, they've talked about that. Joseph has been out to Missouri for the first time. It's a rather shock to his cultural system. The Missourians are not quite like Boston or New England or even Kirtland. And so it is a bit of a shock. And uh, they walked, Ezra Booth is mentioned in section 64, a little kind of a sideline about that, that I get a kick out probably because I was raised on a ranch. The idea of walking and all that way, you know, if you're in England and you're going to take a stroll with Wordsworth, great. But this is America. In America, we ride horses. And Ezra Booth in particular was not too happy with the fact that he had to walk. Now, they probably walked so they could preach the gospel, but he's a little bit peeved and he's going to uh, part of the background of, of seeking occasion against Joseph is maybe for something as simple and uh, inconsequential as having to walk instead of riding a horse. Mm. So he's back in Kirtland now after the Missouri trip. They've dedicated the land. They've dedicated the temple. Uh, They're they're back in Kirtland. He's going to pick up retranslation of the Bible. That's that's basically Section 64. You know, 66, we're going to be introduced to William E. McClellan. 
who is uh, going to be one of the early 12 apostles, is not going to have a long history in the church. He'll become disaffected in Missouri and uh, wander around for a while and uh, never, never return. So, but there are some things that are said to him also. Uh, that's, that's the immediate context of it. I think there's a, a broader context we can look at uh, when we start into verse 1. Let me explain what these verses mean. This is Joseph Smith saying, I'm going to correct the Bible. Now, it's, it's not enough that he is going to say, by the way, I'm going to give you additional scripture. I'm going to go to the one you've already got, and I'm going to amend it and change it. Uh, it's a tremendous thing, but I think the most important element of the retranslation of the Bible that he'll work on for a, for a number of years is that it will become the catalyst for other revelation, like section 76, most important example of that, where we are taught in that, in our own relevancy for our own lives, that the scriptures are one of the major catalysts for personal or private revelation. And that's what's going to happen in Joseph Smith's life with the he and Sidney Rigdon going through this. But for me, it is not so much some of the changes that he makes or clarifications that he adds. Uh, you know, the Pearl of Great Price Book of Moses is the beginning of that. And, and that is tremendous. It is just the audacity of this farm boy <laughs> having the the desire, you know, the, uh, yeah, I don't know any other better word than audacity to say, um, let me fix this for you. Right. Uh, mm. Let me tell you what Jesus and Paul really meant. So, uh, yeah, we had uh, Dr. Garrett Dirkmacht here and he said there, uh, he basically said there is no historian uh, who takes Joseph Smith seriously, who would say he didn't believe he was a prophet. He, right. Yeah. He, he to have the audacity like you're talking about he believed in his calling and yeah and he, he had was. audacity to do a lot of other things too yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but this is certainly one and he's a kid we keep we keep forgetting that i mean yeah early 20s and early some 20s. of the guys that he's got surrounding him are a lot more educated than he is and i just think what how interesting for them to be teachers and and as store owners and things to come around Joseph and then, oh, wait, where are you from? And, and then to accept him as a prophet. I love, um, I love what it must've taken for them to do that. Yeah. There is a lot of humility in some of them. McClellan <laughs> will be one yeah. who never quite gets to the point Brigham Young gets to, or HBC yeah. Kimball gets to. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times those who have the earliest, the, the most trouble with Joseph in the early days were those who thought they they knew more. You know, pride is a very difficult thing to deal with. Um, there is pride in wealth. Uh, I think pride in learning is a more dangerous one. If I had to pick what's the most dangerous pride, uh, ironically, maybe for some, it would be pride in goodness that we call self-righteousness. So probably easier to get rid of pride of wealth or pride of learning, but pride in goodness can be a real, real challenge. And some of the early uh, men will will face that. Yeah. They will face that. Yeah. Thanks for that. They, that was that was very helpful. I I, I think as Latter Day Saints, we might not quite understand the relationship between the restoration and the Joseph Smith translation, we kind of keep them separated like they're two separate projects, but they really are woven together. I, I was thinking of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and his audaciousness and saying, you've heard it said of old time, but I say. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's correcting Moses. And people, well, he's correcting Moses. Who is this? You know, and yeah. then to have it at the end say he taught with authority and not right. as the scribes. And then to have the JST, he taught with authority from God and not with authority from the scribes. I, and audacious is the word that, uh, that I, I've seen used for Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And I hadn't thought, yeah, this is, 
Here's Joseph Smith saying, let me fix that. And, you know, I could have rendered that a little plainer. Let me say it this way, but a prophet... Says that later on. Yeah. 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 Let's get into section 64. What are some of the things that we see here that are um, that stand out to you? Well, let me give you just this, uh, since we started with a little bit of historical background, I would go all the way back to the first vision. If you asked somebody, what is the very first command, counsel, suggestion, whatever word you want to use, of the restoration? And who gave it? And it's a two-word command, hear him, given in the sacred grove by the Father himself. Mm. <laughs> and so I think it is, I think it is that's such an important word, and it's all through the doctrine and covenants. You see many, many sects. The whole doctrine and covenants begins with hearken, hear, listen. So here it is in verse one. Behold, thus saith the Lord your God unto you, O ye elders of my church, hearken ye and hear and receive my will concerning you. Just as a side thought, you know, you hear with your ears. And he didn't say read. I'm just doing this as a, as a suggestion to people if they want to maybe do something very easy to get a little more out of their study, it is to take that maybe a little more literally. Normally we read and we engage our eyes and our mind. But when you hear, you're engaging your ear. Now I know I'm putting a little more into this and probably there, but I sometimes say to students, <clears throat> Scriptures originally were meant to be oral, to be read out loud, to be heard. To, you listened to it. And I say the tongue and the ear knows things that the eye and the mind doesn't know. So when I read the Doctrine and Covenants or any scripture, I try in as much as I can to read it out loud or even in a whisper. I like to hear it. I like to hear the Lord's words sounding in my ear. Uh, the tongue will put tone in that the eyes don't see. And tone in scriptures is a very important thing. So I, I love the idea of hear and actually hearing, engaging eyes, mind, tongue, ear, I'm much more likely to pick up little nuances that I might not get. Now, if I go back to the sacred grove, what was the context of that first hear him? And that context, the reason I bring that up is that it fits section 64 so perfectly because section 64, among other things, but at least it's initial thing. And it's, I think, most important thing has to do with forgiveness. So what is it that that 14-year-old boy wanted in the sacred grove that morning when he first heard the father say, hear him, give the initial commander counsel of the restoration? We have to go to the 1832 and the 1835 accounts, which I wish we had canonized right alongside the 1838. The 1838 is the most literarily perfect but the 1832 and the 1835 tell us Joseph wanted mercy. He said, I, I felt convicted of my sins. I mourned for my sins. Now, this is New England. This is Calvinistic territory. Um, this is, uh, you know, guilt on people worse than Latter-day Saints put on themselves. <laughs> and Joseph wants forgiveness and mercy. The reason he wants to know which church to join is so he can know how to be saved, know how to get mercy. Now, if you put that into context, I love the boy in the grove more than the man of Nauvoo. I, I just will tell you, it's the boy bewildered in the grove wanting forgiveness that strikes me so deeply. And he's praying and here comes the father. And what does he say? Joseph, remember, what does Joseph want? Forgiveness. Joseph, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And what are the very first words Jesus says to Joseph? Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. 
I go to the sacred grove in my mind every day of my life and offer that same prayer. And all of us do in a sense. And every day of my life, the restoration begins anew for me and all of us. When the father again comes into my soul and my mind and says, Michael, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And what do we hear Jesus say to us? Michael, my son, John, my son, Hank, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. That is the greatest hear him of all hear hymns. And we get it over and over again, the Doctrine and Covenants. And section 64, it's like he's saying, remember what I taught you clear back in 1820 spring? Let me teach it here, and I'm going to broaden it and widen it because I want you to do that with other other people, uh, this, is, this is my will concerning you. So that's the great hear hymn uh, that I really love about this section and, and how it begins, because we all need it, and we need it every day. So I can go to the Doctrine and Covenants and learn doctrine and covenants. I can learn the ideas behind it, uh, ordinances. I can look at history. But what I really want to pull out of every section is the voice behind the words. I want to know the revealer. And in the Doctrine and Covenants uh, is a book about forgiveness. Uh, I call it the forgiving book of the Doctrine and Covenants. Everybody's getting forgiven all the time in this book. <laughs> yeah. Constantly they're being forgiven. And section 64 is what we do. And so he starts out, <clears throat> verse 2, Verily I say unto you, I will that ye should overcome the world. Now, notice what we're learning about the revealer. It's, it's Jesus and the Father I want to find in these sections. I want you to overcome the world. I say, I want to overcome it too, Lord. <laughs> I, will, I will have compassion upon you. I wish a compassionate God. There are those among you who have sinned. And then uh, look at that next word. It's such a lovely word. We're going to see it again. But verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you, this once. Now, it's not that he's forgiving just once. It's... It's once again. Okay, that's the idea. I'm going to tell you again. I've been telling you, uh, under, if you underlined every time I say I don't, for, I don't condemn you and I forgive you in the Doctrine and Covenants, you're going to see a lot of this theme. Uh, I'm telling you once again, for mine own glory, what is his glory? His glory is his forgiving heart. And for the salvation of your souls, I have forgiven you your sins. I will be merciful unto you. Notice that. I will have compassion. I have forgiven. I will be merciful. Those are the key ideas in those first verses. I have given you the kingdom. And the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom shall not be taken from my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. I mean, poor Joseph. You know, he was always the, he's always on the receiving end of criticism. And uh, they're going to criticize him here. Uh, they have been criticizing him, even simply as Ezra Booth saying, I want to ride my horse to Missouri, okay? <laughs> so there is some uh, criticism. This is one of the finest places I know of to, to use as an answer to those who want to go back in church history and find problems with Joseph Smith. Uh, notice what he says in verse 6. There are those who have uh, great words for our modern world sought occasion against him without cause. Now, I like the without cause because the very next verse, word, verse 7 says, nevertheless, he has sinned. Okay, sinned. You sought it without cause. I'll give you cause. <laughs> he has sinned. And then what's the next word? 
but now I already saw that, but for everybody else, okay, he's going to give the example. I forgive you your sins. Uh, I'll admit Joseph's not the most perfect. He's made mistakes. We all make mistakes. He has sinned, but truly, verily I stand you, I, the Lord, forgive sins. Unto those who confess them before me, they, they admit, I go to the Father, I, I tell him I've done something wrong, and ask forgiveness. Sometimes I, I, I say, what do you have to do to be forgiven of your sins? And especially in a Doctrine and Covenants class, I'm going to usually get a, a doctrinal answer. To be forgiven of your sins, uh, you have to repent. And I say, that's a perfectly good doctrinal answer. Um, but it's usually not the, the answer that the revealer is going to give you. Certainly not in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, certainly not in the New Testament. He's going to give you two other things. And we get them both right here. Number one, what do I have to do to be forgiven my sins? Ask. Just ask. It's that simple. And the second thing, be willing to forgive others. Uh, you know, well, there, there's a difference. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to monopolize everything here. You know, um, there, there's a difference between the major problem humanity faces in Eastern religions and in Western religions. So if you go into the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, but especially Buddhism, uh, in, in religions out of India, <clears throat> the problem with that religion has to solve, the problem it has to solve is suffering. That's the problem. Problem is human suffering. <clears throat> the, the answer to suffering is compassion. Compassion and selflessness. That's the answer. Part of it is I can't hurt if I'm not thinking of me. The problem in Western religions, particularly Christianity, but also in Islam and, and to a certain extent in Judaism, uh, but certainly in Christianity, the problem is sin, not suffering. It's sin. Man's human weaknesses. We don't like the word sin anymore. We like uh, weaknesses and mistakes. And, you know, we got all our kinds of words for sin. And what is the solution to sin? Forgiveness. Mercy. That's what Jesus came. That's his whole message. Forgiveness. Uh, and mercy. I will make you at one. We use the word atonement. We probably use the word atonement too much. We're, we're going to wear it out to where it doesn't mean as much anymore. Uh, originally, it meant the conclusion that Jesus was going to bring us to. We're going to be at one with the Father and each other. And he's concerned about us at being at one with each other, and not just with God. You'll see this in section 64. So sin is the problem. Forgiveness is the answer. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, and in particularly, you know, I don't want to speak about anybody other's nation. I can speak about my own. Um, but particularly in America, the answer we are giving now to human weakness, failings, foibles, insensitivities, sin, the, the answer we give is outrage. Uh, Jesus tried uh, not forgiveness, not mercy, not empathy, not compassion, uh, but outrage. Now, there are some things that are done that we need to be outraged about. But the solution the Savior is always giving is forgiveness, understanding. So he asks the question in the New Testament. Uh, he, he refers to it. My disciples in days of old, there's that phrase again, sought occasion. That's Isaiah's make a man an offender for a word. Sought occasion. We live in a seeking occasion world, unfortunately. And so we ask the question, I've been fascinated by the questions of Jesus lately, and I assume that they're all directed to me. And one of them is, why beholdest thou the mote in thy brother's eye? So I answer Jesus, uh, it's there. And, and Jesus 
asks me a second question. The second question he asks is, I know it's there. Why are you looking at it? And the idea is that there are probably a lot of the things that you can look at. So what are they looking at at Joseph? Are they looking at this marvelous boy, uh, this man, this, this human being who is going to give so much goodness and truth and beauty into the world, but who's human like all of us? They're seeking occasion. They're looking for the moats in him. And you can always find them. And the Lord is saying, why are you doing that? Does it make you feel better about yourself to seek occasion at other people, to look at their failings and faults? And I have to, you know, I have these private conversations with God. And, and I have to say, well, the Lord, to be honest, yeah, it does kind of make me feel better about myself to look at the motes in other people and to seek occasion against them or to make him an offender for a word. Another story in the New Testament, Mary comes to wash, anoint Jesus' feet before the last week of his life. And how, how is that act of devotion and sweetness uh, reciprocated by everybody but Jesus? You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, you, we read these words, and some of them, disciples, apostles, were moved with indignation. There's a phrase I can attach to my world. We live in a moved with indignation world, and they murmured against her. And so Jesus asks a question, why trouble ye her? She's doing the best she can. She did what she could. She's done a good thing. Why are you troubling her? And I just look at those, all those phrases, you know, uh, I love section 64. It really makes me have to dig into my own life. Am I a seeking occasion against other people? Am I answering human weaknesses and failings and injustices with outrage or with forgiveness? Especially when they ask for it or apologize or admit it. Am I filled with indignation and murmuring against people. I don't want to be part of the seeking occasion, moat picking, murmuring, seeking indignation, outrage world of my time. And I have to stop myself because it's so easy to get there, whether we're talking uh, political arenas or my heavens, uh, we're having things about this and something as simple as wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. So here is this revealer behind the revealed. But we're starting to understand something. I forgave you, verses one through four. Would you please forgive Joseph? Uh, we can find problems in his life. I have a rule when I look at people in mm. history. I, I can't always keep it as well as I can, and it's not going to work for the Hitlers and Stalins of life. But it's certainly going to work for the founding fathers or Joseph Smith. So I have a, I have a rule that I just try to apply. I, you know, I'm just like everybody. I have my problems with applying my own rules. Uh, Shakespeare once said, uh, once wrote, I would rather preach 20 sermons than live one sermon I preach. <laughs> so I, I feel the same, but, but I really try hard to keep this rule, which is celebrate the good and forgive everything else, because that's what I want people to do with me. And since in the first few verses, that's what he did with everybody. He's going to do it later, specifically with Isaac Morley and Edward Partridge. And, and like you said, Mike, it's going to be tough with some characters from history, right? It is. Yeah, I can't do it with Stalin and Hitler. I, I, I can't do it. I, and there are some injustices and problems that rightly, I suppose, our sense of outrage would be, would be there, but not the way we have it. You know, the Buddha said you can't end hatred by hatred. You can't end anger by anger. You, you can only end hatred by love. Uh, that's, that's the Savior. It's the spirit of Section 64 here. 
And so he says, my disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. In their hearts. That, that you know, forgiveness is hard, especially deep hurts. And sometimes I have to go to the, to the Lord and, and with 64 in my brain, especially when he's going to say, uh, you ought to forgive one another. He that forgiveth not his brother, his trespass, standeth condemned before the Lord. There remaineth in him the greater sin. It's as, as though I don't have enough sins. Now, if I can't <laughs> forgive, I got another one I got to try and repent for. Okay, So it's a challenge. I go to the Lord sometimes and say about some of the deep things. Lord, I know what you want me to do. I know I want to forgive. I don't want to fill my soul with bitterness. I don't want to, the word he's going to use later on is perish. We'll get to that in a second. I don't want to perish because I can't forgive because I'm obsessed with moat picking and murmuring and seeking occasion. I have a hurt. I'll, t- I'll give you what I can. I will forget. I will not feed it. I won't think about it because if I think about it, it hurts and I get angry. Okay. And you know, he has always accepted that from me. Always has he accepted that from me. Sometimes people say I can forgive, but I won't forget. I say, I think that's backwards. I think sometimes we say I can forget. I may not be able to forgive, but I can forget and I can stop seeking occasion and trying to feed it. It's just, uh, it's just such a beautiful um, place. Uh, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. That, that, sound, that part of me says, well, how come you get a different standard than I do? Okay. <laughs> but of you, it is required to forgive all men. Now, part of me can say, well, that's because he, he's a perfect judge. He knows what he's doing. I'm not sure that's how I want to read that 10th verse. I think I want to read it as maybe... Lord, how come you're forgiving all these people? I don't think you should be forgiving all these people. Um, And I think that's the meaning of I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. If I want to forgive Joseph, I'll forgive him. Can you do that too? I've forgiven him. What's your problem? And I think that's true today also when we look back in history and criticize him and, and pick out his faults. I just can hear the Lord say, I forgave him. How come you? What What's your problem? I forgive you, I forgive him, I forgive everybody. You ought to say in your hearts, let God judge between me, put it, put it in his hands, and reward thee according to thy deeds. Now, we don't want to, that could be a little bit, well, Lord, he's done me wrong, so you take care of him. I'm sure you can handle him better than I can. I remember a time that I had a disagreement with a, a brother in the church over, uh, <clears throat> what Thoreau would call mosquito wings and nutshells that get on the railroad tracks of our lives. <laughs> you know, what John Taylor called baby toys. Um, so I apologized, but, and I thought I had fixed it. But I hadn't and found out that, you know, it, it, uh, other people had been told about the disagreement. It got bigger and bigger. And the little molehill of our, our mosquito wing became, you know, a great big uh, 747. And I'm upset. And I'm lying in bed at night. And the voice of the Lord come, comes and says, Michael, help your brother get the anger out of his heart. And I said, Lord, I already apologized. He didn't accept it. He blew it up. He knows the scripture as well as I am. You're supposed to keep these things to yourself. You're not supposed to spread it all over the world. Half hour later, I'm calmed down. Michael, help your brother get the anger out of his heart. And, you know, after hearing that, uh, you know, sometimes God has to tell me to do something more than once. And after about the fifth or sixth time, when I'm saying, Lord, I already applaud the balls in his court. Why don't you tell him to do that? Help your brother get the anger out of his heart. So I got up 
wrote a letter. And as soon as I picked that pen up and began to write, the softness came and the poly, and I could write a sincere, deeply, deeply consoling, remove anger letter, which won me my brother back. And so even though I say it's between me and thee, the Lord is going to always come back and say, are you leaving it to me? Okay, this is what I want you to do. We don't want contention. We We want you to stop seeking occasion. And I'm the great example, Jesus is saying, because you just keep going through this doctrine and covenants, you're going to see me forgiving everybody all the time. Then he does some specifics. You know, he mentions Ezra Booth and Isaac Morley, who were missionary companions who were supposed to go out to Missouri. They sought evil in their hearts. There's another phrase to add to seek occasion Mm. against one another. They sought evil in there. They're looking for problems in other people. I withheld my spirit. They condemned for evil the thing that was, there was no evil. Nevertheless, oh, I love his neverthelesses and his buts. Lots of wonderful buts and neverthelesses. Nevertheless, I have forgiven my servant Isaac Morley. Now we say, what about Ezra Booth? Well, Ezra Booth wasn't very... uh, very repentant. He wasn't asking for it, you know, and he's going to be part of the uh, cause of the mob that'll tar Joseph Smith uh, out at Hiram uh, shortly after this. Ghost Edward Partridge, uh, he has sinned in verse 17. Um, Satan seeks to destroy his soul. I would say, how is Satan seeking to destroy his soul? I would say in the context of 64, it is by getting him to seek occasion and seek evil and murmur and criticize and moat pick. Because if he can get us to do that, uh, he will destroy what they're trying to build. What are they trying to build? Zion. What is Zion? One heart, one mind. Yeah, I can't be one heart, one mind if I'm seeking occasion and looking for evil in other people and, and murmuring and being filled with indignation and, and responding with every problem with outrage. So he then forgives that part. I've gone on long no, enough. No, no, no. This is wonderful. I want to ask you um, if you see a little bit of Matthew 18 in this section so far with the parable of the unforgiving servant. I remember it, it hit me when you said, you know, what do you do to seek forgiveness? Ask and in this parable, those uh, of our listeners who 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 can't remember it, it's a uh, it's a parable about a man who owes uh, a lord a a debtor uh, or someone who has given him a loan. He owes him ten thousand talents, which is a un- massive national yeah, yeah. national debt number. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even the and, government only only the government <laughs> owes more. Yeah, that, yeah. there's very few people that are in that much debt. He says, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. The Lord of the servant is moved with compassion, forgave him the debt. Now, if you stop the parable right there, it's a beautiful parable about the incredible forgiveness of God. But the parable continues that this same servant went out, found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred pence, which is, I think, you know, a small, a small amount comparatively to the to 10,000 talents, the, the fellow servant falls down at his feet, says the exact same thing. Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. He would not. He cast him into prison. Uh, the Lord hears about it. And he says, you wicked servant. And this is the part I wanted, I wanted to bring up because you said it, Mike. I forgave thee all that debt because you asked. That's it. You because asked. Because you asked. You asked. And then he says in verse 33, should you not have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Um, To me, there's a little bit of that language here in section 64. I was just wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, it's the same idea. You get uh, in that parable, that's a wonderful linkage. In the parable, there are two things you have to do to be forgiven. You have to ask, I forgave you, why? Because you asked, shouldest thou not have had compassion? That's another question. Shouldest thou not have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? 
And section 64 is saying the same thing. I forgave you. I forgive you. First few verses. Joseph's got his problems like everybody. And you're seeking occasion and you're not forgiving and you're not forgiving one another. My disciples of old did it. I know this is a hard thing I'm asking of you. It's the big answer to Western religion. I came to give you. I always point out to my students that the very first time he calls him wicked is not when he owes. It's not when he can't pay. It's not any of that. The first time he calls him wicked is at the very end of the parable when he would not forgive, when he went after the, went after right. the other servant, right? Yeah, uh, that's correct. Sometimes members of the church wonder if they've been forgiven. <clears throat> that's a question a lot of people have, especially if you've done, you know, what Isaiah calls crimson sins. Have I been forgiven? And I would just ask people two questions. Um, have you asked for it? Yes. Sincerely asked for it? Yes. You've been forgiven. Second, have you forgiven others? Is there anybody still in debt to you that you haven't removed the debt? And if they say there is, I can't think of anybody that I still owes me something. Then I say, then you walk away, you've been forgiven. Uh, we do, you know, we do the steps of repentance and forgiveness and, and we make it real complicated. And, and, and there is some things, and, and he is in section 64, we didn't go to it. He does say, Somebody's not going to repent, and you may have to, to, to do something church-wise for them, either by, he says, commandment or revelation. Either you follow the handbook, or, or I'll inspire you how to handle the particular situation. There are things that we do. We have confession and, uh, and, and restitution. We do all the R's, but I'm not sure I ever felt like forgiving somebody or repenting due to a lesson on the, the steps of repentance. I think the gospel is simple. And I think section 64, he's trying to make it simple as he does in that parable. You want to be forgiven. I do want to be forgiven. I want to hear him say, Michael, thy sins are forgiven me. Then ask, just ask and forgive others. And then you'll know in your heart, if I've asked and I've forgiven others, I'm forgiven. Yep. Now I still do because I want, I still do what I can for to make up and I try to try not to do it again, you know, but that's what the seven times 70 is for. Cause I'm going to do it again and again and again. Maybe I also love the parable because we worship what I call a 10,000 talent forgiving God. Uh, he can forgive 10,000 talent sins and he can forgive them easily. Yeah. You, you sense that even in six, section 66, we're not there, but you know, we may never get there. Um, <laughs> but when he's talking to William A. McClellan, you know, and he says, you're clean, but not all. So he says, you got some problems. And then, then the very next verse, he says, uh, uh, but you're still called and I want you to go out and preach, you know, and by the way, uh, you've had a little trouble with adultery. Uh, a desire, you know, a temptation you had some problem with, but, but you're still called, you're still going to teach. I hate to call God a casual forgiver because sometimes we aren't casual forgivers. And he does say, there's a little justice here, you know, uh, you might have to take the membership of somebody away. You're not going to do it, he says, because you don't forgive them or because you don't have compassion, but because I have to think of the relation, the reputation of the church and, and the other members. We can't have wolf among, wolves among the sheep. You know, he does have a little justice in there, but um, maybe casual forgiver isn't the right phrase. We worship a delightful forgiver. He likes to do it. He delights in it. Uh, ironically, forgiveness blesses both the giver and the receiver. 
uh, we certainly see that within ourselves. I think we see it with uh, Jesus also. He he likes to do it. It, it. it blesses him to forgive. I had been listening to this uh, section in my car, and uh, it was kind of fun just on that first page, because I'm still using pages, how many times I heard forgive, forgiveness, and mercy. And so I'm so glad we're talking about this. And it reminds me of, there's a, there's a scripture that I've always I've always thought, look, Alma and Amulek are teaching the Zoramites that God will have a son. And so over and over, they're quoting Zenos and Zenoch. See, you've been forgiven because of, the, because of his son and trying to tell them that their understanding of the, uh, the nature of the Godhead is a little messed up. And then I read Alma 33, 16 once and went, oh, don't miss that point because of the other point that's in here. And I'm not looking at it, but I think I've got it pretty close. Um, Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son. And I thought, whoa, don't miss that. It's not that they cannot, but they will not understand. And and as as a as a bishop, what you just brought up, people that that are worried and won't forgive themselves. Have I, have I been forgiven? And can I forgive myself? And I've always just love that verse. They will not understand thy mercies. And what a wonderful thing to take time and, and study here. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, pe- people in the church sometimes, I know the, the kind very well. I can be one myself or what I call pink people. Pink people. Isaiah says, though your sins be scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they be crimson, <laughs> I'll make them white as wool. And and I think sometimes we read it. If you have scarlet sins or crimson sins, uh, with a lot of repenting on your part and a lot of atoning on my part, I can make you a light shade of pink. <laughs> I'm going to get you pink. Uh, you're never going to be quite as white as those snow people over there who never did the big sins. But uh, I'll get you pink. And I think that that is why I love the Doctrine and Covenants and how forgiving he is. Wow. Yeah. I love the first vision. I mean, Joseph didn't do any great sins, but uh, we worship a really forgiving God. And uh, he he tells Sidney Gilbert, if I get back just a little bit, maybe we can finish this uh, off, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot us to another spot here uh, in verse uh, 18 and 19. Now, Sydney, <clears throat> you're going back out to Zion. So you, that which he has seen and heard may be made known unto my disciples. You tell him to go out and tell him what he just heard, that they perish not. And for this cause have I spoken these things. I've told you all this about me, about you. I've given you these counsels um, so you don't perish. You don't perish uh, in bitterness, in uh, uh, recrimination against one another, in anger, in seeking occasion, in filled with indignation and outrage. Uh, you will be merciful. Now, again, I know that's hard. If I just jumped over to verse uh, 32, verse 32, uh, all things must come to pass in their time. Now, that's a specific reference here to obtaining an inheritance in the land of Zion. In a church history perspective, if we're just looking at what this means, I'm going to apply it to myself, but Um, A lot of people wanted to go out to Zion right away. In fact, that's going to cause part of the problems in Missouri that it was supposed to be controlled. You were called to go out. We don't want a whole lot out there all at once. People are going to go out and and antagonize the Missourians. There's going to be problems. Uh, He he says in the section, I want to have a stronghold here for at least five years. And they'll be in Kirtland another five years. And then... Then if you want to go out to Zion, I won't hold you guilty. Okay, that's verse 22. 
So everybody can't go rushing out to Zion right now, though a lot of them want to. Um, like I say, that's going to cause some problems later on in Missouri. Uh, you're going to get your inheritance in time. So that's the background of it. But I, I want to take verse 32 and my inheritance, hopefully with my father in heaven sometime in a future world. And I can hear the Lord. I get impatient with myself. Do, do you ever get impatient with yourself? I get impatient with myself. I can be frustrated with myself. I believe in a 10,000 talent for giving uh, white like snow, not pink God I, for everybody else but me. And so I can hear the Lord say, as I am trying to build my character, I'm trying to be a Christ-like person. I want to think and love and pray and obey and forgive and be kind just like Jesus. That's what I want. And he says, Michael, what I want is your heart. He says that, verse 22. I, the Lord, require the hearts. What I want is your heart. And I can see, and I hope everybody that's listening who's really trying, obedience isn't perfection. Obedience is trying. I want your heart. I can see I have your heart, Mike. And so I'm telling you, as you try to perfect yourself, as you try to, to be as merciful as I am, as you try to stop seeking occasion, uh, all things must come to pass in their time. It takes time. Wherefore, be not weary. It's just so tender. Be not weary in well-doing. You are laying the foundation of a great work. I know he's talking about Zion, but I'm talking about me. I'm trying to talk about the great work of trying to make the soul of Michael Wilcox just like the soul of Jesus of Nazareth. It'll come in time, Mike. You'll get there. I know I've got your heart. And out of small things proceedeth that which is great. You just do those little day-by-day -day acts of goodness and kindness that nobody's going to see, that nobody's going to celebrate, but I notice it because I am a God who watches small things. I'm a small things God. By that, I mean, I, I, I know sparrows fall, and I know the little sparrows of your life. Out of small things proceedeth that which is great. And then he reiterates, the Lord requires the heart and willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land in these last days. Uh, I, I'm not a perfect person, far from it, but I want to be, and God knows he has my heart. It's one thing God knows. He's got my heart and my mind. So what do I get from him? I get forgiveness. I get mercy. I get, don't give up. You're laying the foundation and you'll get there. We're, we're going to get you there. He does that time and time again. You are little children. You don't understand all that God has prepared. But be of good cheer. I'll lead you along. That's section 78. All those little tender moments uh, that you see in the Doctrine and Covenants from time to time when he just tries to help us just hold on here. And 64, he's dealing with one that's a big, a big challenge for all of us. We got, we got to stop seeking occasion. I, um, I have a thought here from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. This is in the April 2012 General Conference. Um, he says, he was actually talking about a different parable in the New Testament, the laborers in the vineyard. Um, he says, uh, this parable, like all parables, is not really about laborers or wages any more than the others are about sheep and goats. This is a story about God's goodness. 
his patience and forgiveness and the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a story about generosity and compassion. It is a story about grace. And then I wanted you to hear this thought because it goes along with what you've said, Mike, about the delightful forgiver. It underscores the thought I heard many years ago that surely the thing God enjoys most about being God is the thrill of being merciful, especially to those who don't expect it and often feel they don't deserve it. Uh, it's oh, I just the thrill of being merciful. I think one of the reasons we, as members of the church, love listening to Elder Holland is there is a tenderness in that man's heart. He's an apostle. An apostle are to give the message of the Savior, the good news, the gospel. And his heart for me is the message, just listening. Uh, there's such a tenderness uh, in Elder Holland uh, and in so many of them, you know, that an apostle has to reflect what Jesus was. What manner of men ought ye to be, says to the twelve, even as I am. And that means just as, uh, just as forgiving. I think one of the things I, I love about verse 34, uh, the heart and a willing mind. And I one day just... Uh, did a search on the word willing and was struck with how the Lord is able. And it doesn't say an able mind. Uh, we can be willing, though. When in Second Nephi, it says, I am able to do my work. And God is able. Uh, we are weak, but thou art able. You know, it's that thing. But we can be willing. And so those words give me some hope to keep trying and be willing. I love what you said. Obedience isn't perfection. Obedience is trying, and I'm willing to keep trying. That word has, in the sacrament prayers has blessed me a lot. I'm going to keep being willing to do those things. And the Lord is so merciful, he says, come back next week, and we'll, we'll uh, make this covenant again. Oh. You said that Latter-day Saints heap, sometimes heap guilt upon themselves. Where do you think that comes from. Why do we why do we do that? I've seen that in my own life. I've seen it in my family's life. We just we heap the guilt upon ourselves. And you said Joseph Smith comes from a Calvinistic society, which is even worse than that. Where do you think that where does that come from? Well when you you know we set the bar high uh, in our lives and wherever you have a high expectation of yourself uh, you know and you don't meet it. And I, I have to remind myself that uh, that sometimes that the the great message of Christianity, the Savior's life, was to learn to love the Father and to trust Him. Um, but we do have that ingrained in us somewhat uh, that fear of sin is has eclipsed our our love of God or our ability to feel um, the love of God. Uh, you know, I think another problem that had developed in Christianity is being right became more important than being good. And so we argue about all kinds of things, you know, that, that throws us into Section 66 a little bit. Also, when the Lord says to William E. McClellan, reason with people. And, and all through uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, he's saying, don't revile, don't argue, don't listen to contention. This is not of me. I, it's not about always being right. Uh, it's about being good. Uh, there's something that comforts me out of Islam, out of the teachings of, of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, that comfort me somewhat in this uh, perfectionism, guilt complex that a lot of Latter-day Saints have. Uh, he said, uh, good deeds weigh 10 times more than bad deeds. And, and we say, why? And the answer is because bad deeds I can forgive and they're gone. But your good deeds are always there. I never forgive them. They're always there. I think my favorite Muhammad quote or Quran quote is that gives me some hope is he deserves paradise who makes his companions laugh. 
Yeah, that's a that's a, yeah. There's a lot in Islam that's really beautiful. Um, uh, there's a point in the Divine Comedy that Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, his uh, this great uh, masterpiece of Italian literature, when he's leaving Purgatory. You know, he takes his journey through uh, hell, Purgatory, and he's going into paradise. And the last thing he does as he leaves purgatory, now he's going to, he's preparing to go into the presence of God. And there are two rivers he wades through and drinks from. The first river comes from Greek mythology. It's Lathe, which is the river of forgetfulness. And when he drinks from the river Lathe, he forgets all his sins all the negatives of his life, he forgets them. Then he goes to a river that Dante invents. It's called the river of you know, not you know, but E-U-N-O-E. And it means good memory or good mind. And he drinks from that one. And every good thing he ever did in his life, All the good, all the positives, he remembers. So now, all sins, all negatives, all mistakes, forgotten. And all good, remembered. He is prepared now to enter into the presence of God. There are times I pray, you know, I sometimes feel poets know things that maybe even prophets don't know occasionally. Uh, There are times I pray, Lord, please let Dante be right. (laughs) I know it's in a poem. I know, but it's great literature. I long to drink from those rivers. Mm -hmm. We can't go moaning through all eternity remembering the mistakes of our past. Sooner or later, we got to drink out of that river. One of the most tender things, and I hope I can tell it, when my wife was dying of cancer um, towards the end. Now, my wife was a typical Latter-day Saint woman. And a response to your question, why is it that we have so much, uh, you know, we carry so much uh, guilt and perfectionism? She had it. And as she was dying, she said to me one time, she looked at me, up at me, uh, bright eyes and a look of serenity and peace on her face. And she said, for the first time, I can remember. I don't feel any guilt. I don't feel any shame. I can't tell you what that meant for me. She's about to go into God's presence and a baptism of cleansing takes place at that veil. And she drinks from Dante's rivers and goes into God's presence. All the moats, all the beams, all the negatives, all the regrets, gone. There is a deep, deep, deep part of me that believes firmly that we're going to have something like that. The closest is Alma the Younger, who says, I could remember my, if I could edit that, (laughs) I'd love to say my sins no more. But I guess we need to remember some of our mistakes so we can learn from them, right? But he said, I could remember my pains no more. And, uh, you know, I think if we, if I, if I try and throw us back into section 64, I think if we can understand the mercy and the love, the goodness of Jesus and our Father, now we become what he wants Zion to be. They're just starting out Zion. They want, they're, they want to create this city, New Jerusalem, out in the wilderness. And so I go to verse 37. I, the Lord, have made my church in these last days like unto a judge sitting on a hill or in a high place 
to judge the nations. Now that's a metaphor. That's likes in there. Let's let's not take this too literally. This is metaphoric language. And judge in this case means to minister to. Now we're going to kill that word in the church too. We're going to use that word so much it's not going to be any value anymore, okay? It means to tend, to care for. People go up to see the judge because they're going to get justice and peace and goodness from him. It's not a harsh. Our word judge, we tend to read harshly. Zion isn't going to be harsh on the word condemn the world. I want you to be up on that hill in that high place to judge the nation. Skip a little bit. Um, Verse 41, I say unto you, Zion shall flourish and the glory of the Lord shall be upon her. Well, what is the glory of the Lord? Well, he said, I earlier, I forgive you. Remember, clear back in verse three, I forgive you for my own glory. And one of the greatest glories of the Lord is his mercy, his love, his compassion, his forgiving heart. Zion shall flourish and the glory of the Lord shall be upon her and she shall be an ensign unto the people and there shall come unto her out of every nation under heaven. Because what will they find in that judge on the hill, in that city on the hill, they will find peace and goodness and love and forgiveness and mercy. Please join us for part two of this podcast.